from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. A proposal to establish an intermediate court system has passed the Senate Judiciary and is now in Senate Finance. We'll hear from both sides of that debate tonight. We'll also look at the governor's proposal to fully fund the Intellectual Developmental Disabilities Waiver Program. But first, joining me now, senior rep reporter Dave Mistich and reporter Emily Allen. Welcome to the two of you. Uh, Emily, let's begin with you. Uh, committee substitute for House Bill 2433 was up for a vote today. Again, that's the bill that would set the school calendar to begin on September 1st and to end no later than June 7th. What happened? What happened? The bill <laughs> failed. It was the first one to fail this session on the House floor. It was a very narrow vote, 47 to 50. Um, Mainly what took over was uh, more delegates were concerned about losing county local control than they were um, setting something up. We have a few clips prepared from delegates uh, Coles and Delegate Hannah and then the bill's uh, lead sponsor, um, Delegate Kelly, uh, prepared for you right now, kind of expressing that wide range of viewpoints. Who's empowered under the current system? And it seems to me that it's local communities, local schools, their parents, their staff, they are empowered to make local decisions under the current proposal. And under the new proposal before you, the question would be who is empowered under that proposal? I think it's probably the state board, the state department of education, the state school board members, not your local communities. So to really say that, that we're taking flexibility away from the counties, I really just don't think is fair. Um, I think what we're really doing is giving surety to our teachers, parents, and students that they'll know exactly when school will be every year. Who supports the bill? Parents support the bill. I haven't talked to a parent in my district that doesn't want this bill passed. Teachers want this bill passed. I haven't talked to a teacher in my district that doesn't want this bill passed. Students are all for this bill. They want this bill. They want it passed. Members of the State Board of Education are supportive of this bill. They want it passed. And again, it went back and forth. There were more than, I think, more than uh, 30 delegates, and some of them spoke twice against it, and it did fail uh, 47 to 50. Dave, we have a couple uh, joint resolutions to go through tonight. Uh, sure. The first one I'm going to hand to you, uh, Senate Joint Resolution 7. Tell right. us about it. So everyone remembers the, state, the impeachments of the state Supreme Court back in 2018. Um, one of the things that resulted in that was a decision by the ad hoc bench of the state Supreme Court that said 
the case was State X Rel Workman v. Carmichael. Now, basically, the proceedings, the trials in the Senate were halted by that. Um, there were the the decision issued by this temporary bench of the court essentially said that the um, the legislature had no jurisdiction to impeach them. Uh, it essentially nullified all of those impeachments, and so the legislature a year la uh, a couple years later now. Um, Back in October, they asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take it up, uh, and then the U.S. Supreme Court said, we're not going to touch this. So the, the, the Senate Judiciary Committee was, was working Senate Joint Resolution 7, uh, which would basically undo that decision by the temporary bench of the Supreme Court. It would offer a one-line amendment to the state constitution. I'll read that really quickly. It would say, the courts of this state have no authority by mandamus, prohibition, contempt, or otherwise to interfere with the proceedings of either house of the legislature. So uh, there was some conversation there in committee. Uh, Senator Richard Lindsay, a Democrat from Canal County, wondered if this was a bazooka when we really need a fly swatter. He cited some other proposals that have been made in the past to sort of remedy this decision that focused just on impeachment rather than this idea of proceedings of the legislature. Um, Senator Charlie Trump argued that the chair of that committee argued that um, you know this is more about redefining the separation of powers. So the bill cleared out of committee. Uh, it heads on, but lengthy debate, very constitutionally heavy debate there in committee today. All right. Also, Senate uh, Joint Resolution Eight. We have an update on that. That was the um, that was the focus of more Senate uh, remarks today. This was for the manufacturing uh, growth amendment, removing the property tax uh, on inventory and equipment for large manufacturers. Several uh, senators uh, stood to uh, speak for and against. We're going to first hear from Senator Michael Romano, Democrat from Harrison County, uh, speaking against that repeal of taxes. And then we'll hear from Senator Mike Azinger, a Republican of Wood County, who spoke against the tax repeal, or against, or excuse me, for the tax repeal. There's no Democrat over here that doesn't think getting rid of the business personal property tax is a good idea. It's a gross income tax. You gotta pay it whether or not you make money. But we're not gonna get rid of it recklessly. We're not gonna do it without a replacement for that income for our counties and public schools. Continually cutting taxes irresponsibly is a loser's proposition. Sure, it's on somebody's checklist, ALEC or the U.S. Chamber, just like the Intermediate Court of Appeals. Means nothing, cost us money, but yet we're gonna check that box. Because we get down on our knees in front of business when they dangle a job out in front of us, but they don't have anything to do with bringing jobs to our state. This is a no-brainer. This is not something difficult. We need to get rid of this tax in a bad way. West Virginia has got to build its reputation to be a job-creating state. We do not have that reputation, Mr. President. Around this country, we still, even though things have been better the, the last five years, we've been losing population for 50 years, we, we, uh, uh, we still do not have a good reputation for business around the country, and this will be a big deal in get us, getting us uh, in that direction. 
And again, that was only a small portion of the back and forth on Senate Joint Resolution 8, which remains in the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Dave, you've been focused on intermediate courts today as well. That's right. Uh, Senate Bill 275, it cleared the Senate Judiciary Committee Monday, but that was, uh, you know, not before being amended to have potential judges uh, be seated through nonpartisan elections. And these initial appointments would take place through recommendations of the Judicial Vacancy Advisory Commission. Um, this would create two three-judge panels um, that would allow for an additional layer of the court system, another appeal, so to speak, <clears throat> excuse me, these uh, panels would be split, split between a northern and a southern district, but would ham handle civil cases only. Uh, earlier, I spoke with representatives of groups on both sides of the debate, Danielle Waltz, who represents the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and Jonathan Manny of the West Virginia Association for Justice. We'll take a listen to that conversation. So, Danielle, Jonathan, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. So today, of course, we're talking intermediate courts. And before I want to get into the finer points of this bill as it stands right now, I want to start by giving you both an opportunity to give me the elevator pitch for and against this bill. Uh, Danielle Waltz, we'll start with the perspective of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Again, thank you for having me. And, and certainly, I think that this is a place where West Virginia, you know, once again is outside the norm. We were one of only nine states that doesn't have an intermediate court. And we are the largest population that doesn't have one by 500,000. And when you look at the important and critical reasons to have an intermediate court here in West Virginia would be to modernize and make our court system more efficient. It would be to allow parties to have a full and fair opportunity to be heard. And certainly the last one to make West Virginia a more attractive place for businesses. Sure. And Jonathan Manny, your, your pitch for, for opposing this bill. Sure. There's multiple reasons why intermediate court is a bad idea. The first of which is budgetary issues. Um, our state is strapped for cash right now. We're stripping our ability to care for our seniors. There are senior services that are not being provided. There are roads with potholes. I was just driving up to Snowshoe last weekend and the interstate collapsed. They had to shut down around Weston because we're not able to maintain our roads. And then if you look at the foster care situation with the opiate uh, crisis, these are all things that should be funded over building another layer of bureaucracy and adding high paying jobs for really for lawyers. Actually, in the end of the day, $130,000 a year jobs that are being provided solely for lawyers. Right, and, and you talked about cost. Uh, based on the fiscal notes that came out of Senate Judiciary, and the way I understand it, it would be about $4 million a year. I wanna go ahead and point that out, so. Correct. And uh, before we move any further, I want to take a moment to throw to some tape of Senator Tom Takubo. He's a Republican from Kanawha County. This is from the Senate Judiciary Committee on Monday. Is this going to be the end-all be-all uh, that's going to fix the problem? Maybe not. Maybe in 10 years it does need to go away, but the so future we'll legislature can I'll certainly do that. I think the discussion uh, concerning why you wouldn't sunset that, because I certainly um, Thinking about that when the, my friend from Harrison brought that up, but at the same time, it, the, the discussion that it could create uncertainty and the very prospect that it's trying to achieve in terms of the tax climate, this isn't a tax bill, but it's a, a legal bill. And when we talk about trying to improve uh, lives for West Virginia, it really encompasses many things. It's not just uh, the opioid or the education. And so the, the Senate has worked very vigorously over the past few years addressing the opioid issues it's worked very vigorously trying to address education issues and getting workforce issues uh, with Senate Bill 1, for example, last year, trying to get uh, vocational and, and career-ready jobs. It, it requires an all-encompassing effort, and the U.S. Chambers and other uh, 
business entities has clearly uh, indicated that they feel this may be a very important tool in the toolbox. It's not the end-all be-all, but it could be an important piece of the puzzle. Jonathan Manny of the West Virginia Association for Justice, I'd like to start with your reaction to what Senator Takubo said there. Well, one of the things that was said at the very end of his presentation was that it was being brought upon uh, and pushed by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is not the state chamber of commerce that we think of, the local businesses, the mom and pop organizations that are run by people that we all know and actually live here in West Virginia. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is huge multinational corporations. And the benefits that inure to a multinational corporation is not the same that would inure to a small business. Small businesses need protection. This does not provide protection. In a case with, like, that would go to the intermediate court, what this does really is add another layer of litigation. It drags out the entire litigation process. So when small businesses are fighting over their rights, their, their say, their, um, their patent rights, it just extends out another three or four years. It's, you're not going to have the certainty in it, and it's just going to drag out the cost of litigation. And Daniel, I mean, do you want to go ahead and respond to that? This idea of the, the U.S. Chamber sort of working in, in concert or, or on behalf of bigger corporations and, and the difference between the state chamber? Certainly. And, and number one, I think, you know, hearing this big villain, the big corporation all the time, whether we like it or not, it certainly matters what the outside perception is of West Virginia as to whether or not people want to do business here. And this is a concern that's been raised over the last several years. Um, two, would like to add, we're adding partners um, to our coalition and the West Virginia Business and Industry Council, which represents thousands of employees here in West Virginia, is going to be in favor of, of the intermediate court. And I don't think, when you're looking at wanting to get a decision right, that affects whether it be an individual or a business and the process in which uh, matters are litigated for them. Uh, this isn't really, it's not the creation of extra bureaucracy. It's allowing a full and fair opportunity to be heard and giving those parties the ability to, to adequately and correctly adjudicate the claims, whether they're bringing them or that those claims are against them. And everyone deserves fair access to justice. Right. And, and there was a healthy debate on this bill in committee. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the amendments that were offered. Uh, one came from Senator John Pitsenbarger, of, a Republican from Nicholas County, would call for these judges to be elected. I take it, John, that since you're opposed to this bill on principle, uh, that this amendment doesn't really sweeten anything for you at all. Not really. I, I, again, it's an unnecessary cost and it's an unnecessary burden. The court system does not need it. If you look at the, if you look at the filings in the Supreme Court, the, the actual appeals that are being heard are down like 60%. Where, where is the need for another layer of courts? This, the court doesn't need it. There isn't some sort of a backlog. Right. And, and so, Danielle, do you want to respond to, to this idea, this amendment, um, the, the, now that judges would be elected under the current version of the bill? Certainly, I think um, for those that look at these issues, you can make arguments for the appointment and election of ju judges, and both systems have pros and cons. Uh, I think from this standpoint, you know, allowing the people to, you know, speak on this particular issue, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, with respect to um, the backlog, you know, looking at this bill in a vacuum and talking about the Supreme Court's caseload doesn't take a look at the spectrum of 
of all of the different jurisdictional issues that the bill addresses by taking you know, administrative procedures out of Kanawha County where there's a big backlog on that, by removing the family court appeals from the circuit judges who have a big backlog related to a lot of the issues that are in front of them and allowing them to give more attention to the issues in front of them and moving that to the intermediate appellate court. There are a lot of aspects of this bill that go well beyond just the Supreme Court's caseload but also you know, leveling out jurisdiction numerous courts around the state. Right. I also want to mention the way the bill is written now, Governor Justice, uh, whether he is reelected or not in November, would be able to make the initial appointments for this court uh, on January 1 of next year to still stand this court up. Do you have any take on that at all? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, that's a my my. my my client and the position I'm advocating for is about the existence of the bill, so I'm not, not sure that that's something that we're going to take as much of a position on. I will say that there's a check and balance on the appointment process that includes the appointment of the governor, the advice and consent of the Senate, so I think there's a check there. And then there's also, you know, given the amendment that's been put in the bill, there's also, you know, an immediate election by the people here following, so an opportunity to check it from there as well. Also in committee uh, Monday, Senator Paul Hardesty, he's a Democrat from Logan County. He spoke against the bill. Uh, we'll take a quick listen to his comments and come back to discuss how that plays into the arguments over this intermediate courts. I have tried to be objective about this, this bill last year and this year. I went back in my district, which is the five southwestern counties in the state, and I had a survey conducted by our local chamber of commerce, and I had them poll members of my community that employ five, 10, 25, 50 individuals, up to 100. I said, tell me if you think you need this. Not one company in Southern West Virginia came back to me and felt we needed this. If Honestly, if I felt like we needed this, I would most assuredly vote for it. But they all came back to me with the same answer. They weren't against the concept. They were against the need. Daniel, with you representing the U.S. Chamber and, and the comments there from Senator Hardesty, I'm curious what your reaction to all that is. Um, certainly, and I, I was president of the committee when he addressed it and addressed right. it then. Um, one, I'm not sure who all he spoke with. I don't know whether he spoke with every company in southern West Virginia or not. I do know that we have seen local voices, as I mentioned, with the Business Industry Council who are going to be in support of the bill. Um, it, I'd also say that, um, you know, West Virginia has a lot of different issues that are in front of it. And I know Mr. Manny mentioned, you know, uh, you know, potholes and opioids and all of these things. And, and no one is suggesting that this court is going to fix all of our state's problems. It's, it's the suggestion is that this court is a part of the solution to the problem. And with West Virginia being in the position that it's in, an all hands on deck approach is necessary. Mr. Manny, any response to all that? Yes, the issue is the resources that it that the intermediate court will draw away from the state that could be repurposed for necessary senior care for abuse and neglect children, foster care. There's, Ms. Waltz talked about the, the issues with the Kanawha County Circuit Court and the, the abuse and neglect issues that are going on in circuit courts. Um, and these are issues that should be going before the intermediate court, not all the way up to the Supreme Court. How come items that are only 13% of Supreme Court filings are gonna be thrown into the intermediate court when criminal and abuse and neglect that makes up 
the vast majority of cases will not have the benefit of going through the intermediate court. Is there any way if, if, if criminal cases and all these other types of, of, of litigation and cases would make their way into the bill that you guys would be amenable to it? No, because it ultimately comes down to a resource-driven matter, and it is totally unnecessary. The, the intermediate court is absolutely unnecessary. It costs too much in a state that has very little money right now. You know, and sort of with, with a little bit of with time running out here, I want to get to one point. Um, I have to mention the intermediate court system in North Dakota, a state with a population of less than half of West Virginia's. I understand that they are, you know, in the, they haven't heard a case since 2007 after hearing 37 cases in 33 years. Uh, it sounds to me that that's, that's a, a similar point that you'd like to make here is the possibility of that happening in West Virginia. Well, I don't. I, I would hate to draw any kind of an analogy to North Car or I'm sorry, North Dakota, because I don't know what their structure looks like. But it, I, my point goes directly to the, to the issue of it is absolutely unnecessary here. If, we, if our Supreme Court was clogged down with appeals, that'd be one thing. Uh, but the simple fact of the matter is, it's not. The items that are drawing away from our court system, our circuit court system are issues that aren't even going to be able to avail themselves to intermediate court. Right. You want to talk a little bit about what's what's happening in North Dakota as an argument, you know. Uh, I would think I would say that that model is significantly different than the model that's proposed here in West Virginia. It's a deflection model. Um, and one of the things that was prevalent during the presentation that was made in front of the committee is I think there's about 1,100 cases that are in front of the Supreme Court right now. And you would see about 400 of those cases that under the current model that wouldn't go directly to the Supreme Court but would go to the intermediate court. But then the intermediate court would also have the increased load of the cases that I discussed when you're talking about Diverse, diverting some of the, the items from um, Kanawha County Circuit Court and the circuit courts around the state directly to the intermediate court, then allowing circuit judges to spend their attention on the things that are the most important when we're talking about these abuse and neglect situations and whatnot. And additionally, allowing the Supreme Court when those cases get up to them, because those will go directly then to be able to spend time and attention on those critical and important cases that are affecting West Virginia the most. And this bill, uh, a similar bill passed the Senate last year but didn't make it through the House. Uh, with, with just a few moments left, any final thoughts on, on where you see this going or anything that we didn't cover in the, in, in the course of this conversation? Start with you, Danielle. I don't know that it's um, appropriate for you know me to estimate what I would expect that legislators will or won't do. What I will say is that I certainly would urge them to support something that would bring West Virginia into the norm with modernizing its court system and providing full and fair access to everybody. Jonathan? Likewise, I would like to encourage those that are out in the public to call in and reach out to their legislators and let them know that, that the appropriate way to spend money would be to fix our roads to provide food and services to seniors, to provide for foster care for our state, and not to put an unnecessary level of bureaucracy, another level of government, into the mix. Great, well, Danielle Waltz from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and Jonathan Manny from West Virginia, uh, West Virginia Association of Justice, thank you both for thank you. joining us. Thank you. Governor Jim Justice's proposed budget calls for enough funding to eliminate a waiting list for services provided through Medicaid's Intellectual Developmental Disabilities Waiver Program. As Randy Yowie reports, more than a thousand West Virginians are on that list and many have waited years for service. Delegate Daniel Walker takes great pride in her son Devin's accomplishments. The 18-year-old copes with autism and 28 other challenging disabilities. His mother is his primary caregiver. 
we waited for four years, but he is an active participant with IDD Weaver, and I am currently his direct care worker. The IDD Waiver is a state and federally funded Medicaid program that serves low-income people with a diagnosis by the age of 22 of an intellectual disability and or related condition. West Virginians who qualify for the program receive community-based support and services. Examples include physical and occupational therapy, skilled nursing, and pre-vocational training. An alternative to institutionalization, the program helps individuals achieve the highest level of independence possible. But historically, there's been a long waiting list for the program. Many have spent years waiting to get services. In his State of the State address, Governor Justice promised to eliminate the waiting list. The announcement impacts 1,068 people, including 606 children. But the program is expensive, and until now, finding funding has loomed as a legislative hurdle. As far as I know, that when the governor submitted his budget, that those uh, IDD waivers were going to be in the budget process. So HHR has appropriated the money to us to t uh, to ask us to put it through there. As far as I know, right now, unless there's other problems with the HHR, those IDD waivers should be funded. The governor's budget proposes taking 19.4 million from a 300 million dollar excess of current Medicaid funds. State disability advocacy leaders like Ann McDaniel say it's all about following through with the final and full funding allocations to the DHHR administered program. If the money doesn't stay in the budget, then there's not money to match the federal dollars that make that possible. House Finance Minority Chair Mick Bates says there is full bipartisan support to end the waiver wait. But Bates notes that integrating IDD waiver waitlisters into the program will take time perhaps longer than the DHHR's prediction of July 1st of this year. Uh, these individuals need to be evaluated, uh, services need to be identified, and then the services have to be delivered. And it's very challenging right now to find people to be able to provide these services uh, for the minimal amount of money that's sometimes available to pay them, for, which is very difficult and challenging work. The DHHR says a contracted company is already assessing individuals. The current timeline is to release slots this March, April, May and June. Priority will go to those who have been on the wait list the longest. Already working within the IDD waiver system, Delegate Walker says the program won't advance to meet more needs without incentives for the workers and training for the families. Because we usually help each other out with advocacy of what agency have you used and how do I look for a good respite worker. Delegate Bates says that bipartisan legislative group has made a vow to monthly and closely monitor and help direct progress in reducing the IDD waiver waiting list from around 1,000 down to zero as soon as humanly possible. In the House of Delegates, I'm Randy Yoey for the Legislature Today. Tomorrow on the Legislature Today, we'll focus on the work of the House Committee on Prevention and Treatment of Substance Abuse, when we're joined by the Chair and Minority Vice Chair. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us tonight. Have a great evening.